0: the biological value system is it's mislabeling the neurons and, and what they are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it takes multiple neurons to kind of uh, that, that have to fire again because It's really kind of like binary. When you look at the neuron, it's just turning it into like a thumbs up or a thumbs down kind of yep. thing. And then it, then it connects to another one that gives that type of thing. And I would tell people if, if this kind of stuff fascinates you, I would highly encourage you to try to study artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, Google has a um, has a thing called uh, TensorFlow Playground. You can just do a Google search for it. TensorFlow Playground. You can set up a deep neural net right there on your web browser. You can set up a deep neural net. So easy to do. Just a total graphical interface. You could put nine, nine neurons in layer one. You could put four neurons in layer two. And just kind of build out this deep neural net, and then there's like a pattern that is put up on the screen, and then you can click start, and you can run a sample set of the pattern. So, like let's say it's 250 dots in it, like a kind of a pattern. You can take a sample, a training set of 10 dots. You can run those 10 dots through the deep neural net. You can watch the deep neural net can get conditioned. Okay. Through like a transition function at each Mm -hmm. neuron and you can watch it actually code itself as if you'd be coding the subconscious of the brain. You can watch how it codes itself so that it can figure out what the pattern is, like the whole context of all the dots, all of this in real time on this. I'm telling you, look this up. It's, It's amazing. And it'll help you. I think it'll help people understand just at a really basic and fundamental level, how your brain conditions itself as it's receiving data points via your eyes, via your taste buds, via yeah. your ears or whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's truly amazing. And on the, the point of artificial intelligence, I think the main bottleneck right now, it's the data sets, right? And the training. It's Absolutely. And so that just points to what actually our brain is doing. It's just imbibing all of this sensorial input and Ooh. iterating on it.
0: If, you, if you're going to get into general uh, artificial intelligence, which is like trying to replicate a human brain, mm-hmm. right? I think the challenge they got there is is not necessarily the training data set. It's how, like if you're trying to replicate the brain, what is really kind of the function of all the various nodes inside the brain? And then how are they wired with each other mm. in order to try to start, you know, getting to this? And then like those the, the transition functions that are kind of turning each signal into binary. Are those different in, in a human lobe versus another lobe? Like all mm. that kind of stuff. No one knows, right? And so like when you're talking general AI, I think that's the bigger challenge. When you're talking uh, artificial intelligence for like cat pictures,
1: <laughs> it's the training
0: set. It's the data yeah. set that's, that you got to get right. And then, uh, you know, obviously how you construct the deep neural net and how many neurons and which layer and, and you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's it's an art form. These people and, that are AI programmers, it's an art form yeah. for with science. the science. The difference between the
1: two would be uh, narrow AI is just specialized at a specific task, whereas general is more that's like right. self-programming, like we're describing yes. we are. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. I want to read another quote from the book here that I think just points to this this fractal structure again. So it says, quote, your family of origin, your culture, your friends, your work, every movie you've watched, every conversation you've had, these have all left footprints in your nervous system. These indelible microscopic impressions accumulate to make you who you are and to constrain who you can become. Yeah. So just like the We were talking about individuals sharing patterns with one another, right? From parents to offspring. It's it's also happening at a neuronal level. Like it's all incorporated here.
0: For a person who's hearing this, like what's the takeaway? And I think the takeaway is, A, you can accomplish so much more than you think you can accomplish. The thing that's probably preventing you from doing it is you're just not thinking big enough Mm -hmm. and setting your sights On a goal that is, Mm. you know, and it it all comes back to the five whys. Why are you trying to do that big thing? Right. Mm -hmm. That that needs to make sense. Um, But you are capable of just unbound potential. Yeah. And I would say at at an age probably way later than you realize, if you want to do those things, um, find the person or people that have done something similar and study the living hell out of them yeah. so that you can condition your brain in a manner of what they did right you can do it too you just have to try to figure out what books did these people read who influenced yeah. them let me try to like replicate the environment that this person might have experienced for 10 years as they were building that start like whatever it is you can basically uh, take yourself and put yourself through that same type of conditioning that led to that person's ability to do it. Now, can you just copy them? Of course not. But you can understand the fundamental things that allowed them to think in the way that they thought to accomplish what it is that they that they did.
1: That's a brilliant message and inspirational and motivational, frankly. To, because I think we do have this Predilection to maybe hold our heroes on a pedestal. You know, I was like, "How did this guy ever do that? Or how did he accomplish it?" But to your point, yeah, digging—they're human, right? We're all human, yeah. and you have the same tools available to you, more or less, as they did. Do you advocate then for biographies or autobiographies, or do you try to focus more on replicating their environments and reading what they read?
0: I think the biographies help you put their environment in a context. You're never going to be able to. Uh, you know, if we're going to like uh, an AI kind of example, mm-hmm. you're you're taking something that's like high definition bandwidth and flowing it through a deep neural net and then you're comparing it to something that's binary that you're flowing through like a very very teeny tiny sample set that you're flowing through a deep uh, machine learning. Like, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's the equivalent of a bio, uh, biography versus living it, right? you're never going to get that same experience but it can it can give you clues as to where to look of making it higher definition data throughput to condition yourself
1: yeah it's great advice especially for for young people i think it's just the power of programming yourself you could you that's, can that's that's all it is man you can literally be whoever you set out to be it takes years clearly and yeah. you there's going to be a lot of fits and starts and errors along the way, but if you point yourself in the right direction and then put in the work. I mean, in the course of two to five years, you can cover tremendous ground, especially reading it, 20 to 50 you, books a year.
0: And this is, this is super fundamental to this whole idea is you will corrupt the, the hard drive. If you blame your current conditions on mm. the wind. That's right. Right. Yes. Going back to the boat analogy, if you're sitting on the boat and you're saying, dang, man, I'm trying to sail that (laughs) direction and and the wind, it's the damn wind (laughs) stopping me. You are corrupting the hard drive when you approach life with the mindset that there's no controls on the boat. Yeah. If you convince yourself that there's no controls on the boat, guess what? You have conditioned your brain to believe there's no controls on the boat. Right. If you're gonna real, you're gonna realize that your subconscious will figure out a way to realize what you just told yourself. Yes. Yes,
1: <laughs> yes. No, I mean,
0: but if you start telling yourself, there's a hundred controls on this boat that can get me there super fast, I just gotta figure out what the hell they are. <laughs> your subconscious will help you realize and find out what the hell those controls are.
1: Yeah, it's it's brilliant. I, there's a there's a good way to play every hand, right? We're all dealt a different hand, but there's a good way to play yeah. it. I thought too the this connection he went into in the book, the relationship between memory and I guess it was visualization or when you're when you're visualizing something in the future versus something in your memory, they're very deeply yeah. connected. Yeah. Um. So the way he described.
0: That's what makes humans very different than all the other animals is their ability to forecast and run models yes. in the future.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we can, uh, um, Peterson describes this as we're the one animal that discovered time. So we know that not only do we need to eat today, but we need to figure out how we're going to eat tomorrow and next year. And um, that came with the discovery of work. So we, we work to overcome the ravages of time, which makes us kind of different than every other animal that's more or less living uh, for the moment by comparison. So the the line he uses to describe memory he says, "Quote: Rather than memory being an accurate video recording of a moment of in your life, it is a fragile brain state from a bygone time that must be resurrected for you to remember." So, and we think that our memories are just. What happened, right? And we just they're recall jacked. them.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're completely jacked. They're jacked. Uh, and and it's in most of what you remember is the emotional piece. Yes, the the, value, the emotional valuation system is what you remember. It's not necessarily like the uh, the optical memory is jacked. Like yes, you remember how people, you know, the famous Maya Angelou quote. You, you'll remember how people make you feel, not necessarily what was said. Yeah, exactly.
1: And it's um, the 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 memories themselves are dis- as distortable as your forward visualization. So it's really just like backwards vis- visualization in a way. We're not recalling yeah. objective facts. We're we're recalling what was I guess biologically relevant in the moment. And I know he made the point that this impacts our experience of time. You know, we always say time mm-hmm. flies when you're having fun. If you're in some kind of traumatic situation, time slows down. I don't know if, you, if you've ever been in maybe a car accident. I have had
0: yeah, I've had that happen to me in a car accident. Same,
1: same here. Um Yeah. T-bone and it was the matrix, you know, just like oh,
0: everything completely yeah. slowed down. Um He does a great uh he he better than most uh other books that I've read about that. Um cuz I having had it happen to me, I was very curious what caused that. Because it almost seemed like like somebody hit the mute button on the simulation, yeah, and uh, what how he describes it in the book is um the processing power that's being dedicated to that final moment of save potentially saving your life. Mm. you're now gaining much larger share of of conscious access. And because of that, it appears like time is slowing down, yeah. It's pretty it was, it was a great I probably didn't do it much justice of how he actually describes it in the book but it was you know very interesting how he describes that
1: but it's so interesting that the the, the flow of time itself it is a conscious phenomenon you know again we, we have this maybe tendency to believe that time is flowing outside of us and things are yes things are transpiring and we're observing them but it's actually time is a it's generated almost in our mind and it, it, yeah. it, it changes speed based on the, the nature of the experience.
0: Almost like a processor mm-hmm. works on a computer. Mm-hmm. It, it has a clock, right? And the, the, the binary is flowing through the, uh, the chamber of the processor. And it's, it's almost like instead of the, the the binary flowing through in a linear fashion, now it's opened up into like a parallel realm mm-hmm. where the binary is now flowing through multiple chambers as the clock continues to process mm-hmm. and turn in turn in, in, and basically push each piece of binary through the next the next chamber. It's crazy dude yeah <laughs> it's amazing.
1: I, it gives you to your point just the optimal, Likelihood of survival, right? You're
0: yeah. That's the, that, that was his opinion on why it exists for humans to be able to do that is to yeah. allow them that, that opportunity to potentially just move that extra uh, millimeter to maybe miss the, the glass shard or whatever. Yeah. So cool. The Neo, you know, it- <laughs> matrix move. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, I'll read another thing here, just on memory, because the other relationship I think about here is that another one of these answers to the question "What is money?" I think money is kind of the collective memory, where we've made certain sacrifices and successes across a history of economic transactions. Um, you know, you've you've rendered favors to the market, and the market has rewarded you in terms of money or monetary value. And you can yeah. then, the memory of your your accomplishments, you can now redeem for other services from others, right? It's a, we're trading favors kind of thing. Uh, clearly, it's in an unperturbed free market system, that would be accurate, right? Like your rich person would be someone that rendered a lot of service to society, whereas today, it's often not the case, it tends to be whoever's closest to the fiat currency printer versus someone that's yeah. actually rendered useful service. Um, so I'll read this, this quote about memory and just, um, to add to that, he says, quote, our past is not a faithful record. Instead, it's a reconstruction and sometimes it can border on mythology. When we review life, our life memories, we should do so with the awareness that not all the details are accurate. Some came from stories that people told us about ourselves. Others were filled with what we thought must have happened. So if your answer to who you are is based simply on your memories, that makes your identity something of a strange, ongoing, mutable narrative.
0: Yeah. Completely. (laughs) So weird. (laughs) Well, and, and people, and maybe it's just our ego of us thinking that we, we remember exactly what happened and, um, us just having overconfidence in mm-hmm. what it is that we think we remember or what we know, when that's just not how your brain functions. Yeah, it, it, it's, it functions more in a way to make sure that you're a protected, that you're not going to get hurt, that you have the ability to act on potential rewards. Um, you know, and so it's optimizing itself to to be able to. It's not, it's not like a photograph stored in a, in a hard drive on your computer. It's just not. Right. Right.
1: So this one's tricky to me though, because you, you don't want to just, you know, throw up your hands and be like, well, I don't know if I remembered anything correctly. Cause then you're just fully manipulable, right? Anyone, if you're, you know, you're in an argument with your spouse and they're like, oh, that's not what happened. This happened and then you just say well i guess so my memory is totally you know mutable so maybe you're right there's this we have to have this balance almost between trusting ourselves and our perceptions and our memories but also having the humility to realize yes. to realize these neuroarchitectural shortcomings
0: humility comes from understanding uh-huh. so when when you are aware of this fact that your mind is so corruptible As far as the the memories, let's say you get in an argument with your spouse and you, and you, and you approach it with this understanding Mm. that maybe just maybe you're not remembering it, you know, in a similar way that maybe she remembered it. Mm -hmm. And maybe what you think you said, you didn't say at all. Right. And so if you have that deep understanding of that potential, you might approach the conversation with, you know what? Sweetie, I think this is what I said. Mm. I and, and maybe I didn't, like truly, maybe I didn't say this at all. But in my brain, this <laughs> is what I think I said to you. Yeah. Right. Um, you kind of you you are approaching it with a lot of humility and and understanding and just the potential that hey, maybe you are wrong and your, your brain's playing tricks on you. I I just find that you, you're probably getting a lot less arguments. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, maybe your life is just a little bit more satisfying because you're not <laughs> in a battle over trying to prove that something that's in your brain as a historical event maybe isn't actually what happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy?
0: Right. <laughs> really. And it really helps if your spouse kind of has that same uh, yes. humility, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's good, and we're just a little foreshadowing for the other book, the Soul. Like it, you get below maybe the facts of what happened, and you get to the intention, right? What you're, bingo. What you intended to say, or what? Bingo. Um, but but I'll, I I'll read allow that book.
0: I, I haven't read that book in so long, but it, it felt so good to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember everything that, that's in that book, but I well, do. I, I remember walking away with that line of thinking right
1: for the for the audience we have about 16 pages of notes from the brain i think the soul is probably close to 40 pages of
0: notes i was <laughs> highlighting like crazy how men. many how many things have we gotten paid through on these 16 pages of notes here
1: i'm in Three? i'm on
0: page two Three? right now two. So,
1: and i'm <laughs> skipping a lot
0: <laughs> but this is great hey everybody mm.
1: or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Oh, you know, the other thing we we talked about memory and visualization, maybe this was related to the story you told earlier with a guy, he had the brain injury Yeah, yeah, and he he couldn't create new memories, but he also, it's the same area. He could not imagine the future at all.
0: No, I'm sorry. It isn't the same. Okay. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The, um, oh, Oh. yeah. Okay. This is similar to the one from the, the book, uh, The Power of Habits that I was talking about. Yes. Right.
1: Maybe this was yes. the guy that, I don't, he had a brain injury from construction work, I think, but um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just, he, if I recall correctly, I'd have to pull it up, but he basically got stuck because you can't form any new memories. So he had memories mm-hmm. prior to the accident, but he couldn't form any new memories after that. And then he was unable to imagine the future. So he basically couldn't, he couldn't do anything day to day, if I recall correctly. Um, yeah. so just, yeah, it calls to that point again, that memory is this tool for, for planning, right? We're both, yeah. I don't know, memory. It's, it's almost like when we visualize, we're trying to remember our future in a way you're trying to like back into what you want to be.
0: Um, Here's here's a fun thing to talk about that's kind of in in relation to what you're talking about here. What makes something funny? When somebody tells a joke, what makes it funny? And it, it actually relates to what you're saying there about the future projections. So, when a person starts to tell a joke, what everybody starts to do is immediately, just like when I posed the question, Everyone tries to figure out what the future is going to be at the end of the punchline. So as the person's telling the joke, they're thinking, "Okay, this it starts off in a bar or whatever, right?" And the person's they're they're showing this array of potential outcomes of where they think this joke is going to end up. And what really kind of triggers a person to laugh at the end is It was nowhere near where they thought the ending was going to go. And it had some, some really clever kind of correlations to the, the, all the things, all the cues that they were telling you, you should have been clever enough to kind of understand where it was going. But it was like this left hook or right hook at the end that, that, that like you realized it was super clever and it was not what you expected. And so, it's, it's a great example of what makes a person human is their ability to be able to do these forecasts in their mind of what they think the future is potentially going to happen. People have this happen to them all the time. Maybe you have a big um, briefing that you're going to be giving Mm -hmm. the the boss at three o'clock, right? The people are envisioning exactly how that's going to go is, is is Kevin going to ask the same question that he asked last time that was in relation to risk Um, is so-and-so going to like they're, they're going through all those scenarios and they're trying to figure out the best way that they can be prepared for that outcome. And this is such a human thing that is so much different than the animal kingdom or or any other, uh, you know, mammal or, or being that has a brain. Mm. uh because they're they're in the now they're kind of processing the the environment that's happening to them right now but not necessarily thinking about future uh mm. activities and if they are doing these things where they're preparing for the future um it's most likely actually coded in their dna um that's or or kind of hard coded into some of the the way that their lobes are constructed
1: right yes yeah, so so we're like telling the story or the joke, there's this realm of possibility opening up in front of it. Everyone's trying to kind of guess the yeah. answer, but then if you can deliver the punchline, which is a coherent answer to the, to the joke, to, to, but the, it,
0: to the cues. Yeah.
1: But they didn't see it coming, right? The distance between, right. I guess, I guess the coherence to the narrative and distance from what they saw coming would be how funny it is. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Interesting to think about. Um, so yeah, there's, have you, maybe you've, you may have heard of this book. I don't know if you've read it. The case against
0: reality by uh, Hoffman. In fact, I just read this book and this was the, I probably finished this book two days ago. Wow. And I think I, I think I read it because I saw you take a picture of it on Twitter. Really? Did you post a picture? I I did. I just read it two months ago, probably.
1: Yeah, I just read this book. Man, well, I don't want to derail our current book, but what did you, I mean.
0: (laughs) I thought it was good. I thought it was good. Um, A a lot of the ideas I kind of felt like uh, maybe I'd picked up in other books about the brain. Um, But yeah, I thought it was a good book.
1: Yeah, the, maybe... This line is what made me think of it, which is in the brain. He said, you don't perceive objects as they are. You perceive them as you are. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, we're, because he
0: was talking about like the whole three-dimensional space and he's just kind of like, is that even real or is that how your brain is? Into-? It was It was a neat read. I really like this read. But yeah, yeah. Right. it, it, it kind of relates to what uh, Eagleman's saying here. So do you think, how would you describe
1: the thesis of that book? And then do you think it's, accurate i mean do you think it's consistent i guess let's say with the brain
0: yeah kind of uh the the whole time i was reading the book i i i guess i was asking myself the so what like what why is it important whether this narrative is is true or not and how does that shape the way that i'm going to act in my environment moving forward mm. and i and i didn't really I, I didn't feel like I really got the so what, right? Mm. Like it's just like, hey, I'm making this, this opinion that maybe everything is just one giant simulation. And I'm thinking, okay, sure, I can buy that, but so what, right? And then I don't know that I was necessarily able to get anything actionable out of that. Mm. Um, yeah, because he's and, and, and none of it's provable, right? So like. It's fun. It was a fun read to kind of. Well, you, I see you're pushing back, and he tried to make it provable, um, but I, I guess it was a. Well, you, you go ahead. You, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, actually, I don't
1: know. It just. So the the general thesis I'll try and do it justice here is that yes, yeah. roughly space and time is not objective reality. Yeah, and that it is actually this biological interface. So we all see the world similarly, can, but not the same. Can
0: only, that's right. We we see it similarly, it's not the same. And we're only sensing a sliver of the amount of data that is in the environment. Mm-hmm. Right. Like when you think about your brain and what it actually can sense in the spectrum of of all the electromagnetic energy and um Molecules that are out there because that's pretty much the two binary things. You either got wave energy or you got particle energy. Um, and all of that is supplying some type of input to the sensors of your body. Those sensors are minuscule in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of all the things that you could be sensing for. So, like, a perfect example is like a bee, right? Like, they can see the pollen in the uh. In the flowers, because they're seeing outside of, um, you know, the the light energy, mm-hmm. the visible light spectrum that human beings are seeing, and that goes for many other animals. And and like when you think of pigeons and how they're able to navigate, well, they're picking up on, you know, a different spectrum of the electromagnetic spectrum in order to carry out these feats that look completely unbelievable to human beings because we have no sensory input for those for that data that's constantly being broadcast at all times. Mm-hmm. So that's that's some of the things that he was talking about a little bit in the book and how when we think about our brain and how limited and, and not only the brain but the sensors and how limited they are to provide sensory input of all this environment. Um I, I don't know. It, it was an interesting read.
1: Yeah, I you know we're he makes a point that we're more attuned. We are wired to see fitness payoffs, not see reality as it that is. That was a,
0: that was a huge theme. Yes.
1: Yeah, and I for me, like I, I agree with you. This so what? It's like okay, we can't even see through any other aperture than our own biological interface. So what? What does that mean for action? I agree with you on that, but what it did do to my, I had this understanding of like astrophysics and the Big Bang, and I, just, I felt comfortable in this. I'd read about it for years, so I thought I kind of knew this whole structure of the universe, how we got to now, you know, from thirteen point seven billion years ago to now. But it made me question that. It's like, what is maybe that? What is yeah. the Big Bang and the universe itself? It's maybe we're just seeing it the way. Seeing it in a certain way that's relevant to us, right? When we see stars in the night sky, the, the light to those stars could just represent fitness payoffs instead of actual objective reality, like big balls of burning gas. See,
0: so, I guess I I've always I guess I've always kind of been very suspect of the whole big bang uh theoretical physics and everything else, uh, like how we got to here at this point in time. I've been very skeptical of that. Yeah. So I guess when I was reading the book and kind of I went through it. I was like, yeah, that don't make, I can, I can totally buy this. <laughs> you already had it intuited. That's awesome. Well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't give myself that much credit. I just, it, it kind of read to me like, yeah, I could, I could just buy that. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, who, who the hell knows? I just, I could buy it. Right.
1: Yeah. It, I don't know. It's a, it's a trip of a book. And now I look <laughs> at the world a little, it just makes you question the way you perceive the world, I guess. Um, but I thought I think it paired one, nicely with this one.
0: I think that's the one thing you get from reading, you know, once you read a lot of books, you just kind of have a deep appreciation for you, pretty much just don't know anything. Yeah, right? like like what you know is pathetic. Yes, right. It's just like there's so many more things like you haven't even scratched the surface, right? Nothing. And I think that's the the thing you just start to. Like, oh yeah, I could, I could see that that we're living in a simulation. Sure, yeah, that works. <laughs>
1: yeah, you start to get much more like uh, Socrates said: the only thing you know is you know nothing at all.
0: That's right. Yeah. I had a guy tell me one time in in the military. Uh, he was in the Navy, and um, he was he was landing on a carrier, and he said, "You know, it was right out of flight school, it was so much fun," and I was like this is awesome. I'm landing on a carrier, you know, he's like, then I got a thousand hours of experience and I, I was the pilot in command and I was landing on the carrier and it was scary as hell Hmm. because I then understood all the things that could go wrong Hmm. when landing on a carrier. And I think it's, it's kind of similar with like all the books and stuff. You just, you start to realize like, Holy hell, I literally know nothing Yeah. like, like I'm super clueless here in this realm of like all these things that are happening. And you just have a deep appreciation for how much the world collectively knows and how much of a pittance, you know, in that grand scheme of things.
1: Absolutely. Do you think that that has to do with people becoming generally becoming more conservative as they age as well? You just,
0: I think a lot of people, um, they really haven't uh, done too much else with their life past like 30, 40. Like they're they're in the do loop of just letting their subconscious just totally dictate mm. them for the rest of their lives. And they really don't have too much. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to phrase it as they don't have much to offer because I think the relationships that they have with their family and everything are extremely profound mm. and valuable to, to the world, right? But as far as like their contributions beyond family and like to the rest of the human race is probably pretty minimal. Um, yeah, they, they aren't learning and continue to try to. Right, yeah, right. they're not. Yeah. They're not trying to expand their knowledge set and then kind of leverage that to to do something for you know very impactful beyond like their immediate family. And that's fine. I, I'm not saying yeah. that in a negative way. Hey, that's fine. Like it's all. Hey, where are you sailing the ship? Right. If you're, yeah. if you're happy at the destination you're at right now, well then why sail somewhere else? Yeah. It's a great.
1: A great point. But I, I think it's my greatest fear probably to ever get stuck in that
0: loop. I don't know. Yeah. And and here's the here's the here's the bigger question. Are, like when you think of, of why are you happy at that destination and why do you not want to do anything else? uh is that because your subconscious is is comfortable in that space and is that is that really where you where you want to end up i mean it goes back to this whole reflexivity are you the one calling the shots or is your subconscious calling the shots Uh, because it's comfortable in its space and it's not having to work hard to figure out a new environment right because that's work like that's When you have to learn a new environment, like you, you move to a new house, you got to learn all your new routes and all this, like it's, it's effort, it's work. It's, do you enjoy that? Well, why do you enjoy it? Why do you not enjoy it? You got to ask yourself these questions. um, Because maybe, maybe 80 comes along and you look back at the last 40 years and you say, I hadn't done nothing. And I'm just really not satisfied with my life at this point. Yeah. You, you uh, well, too late, man. <laughs> <laughs> Things to think about when you're 40.
1: Yeah. Uh, sounds like the makings of a midlife crisis right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I don't, there's something, I mean, I guess a lot of people have this, but just the, the never ending learning thing. You know, I, I never, there's a lot of older people that I've interacted with. This goes back to Bitcoin, the Bitcoin denier syndrome, right? I'm 60 years old. I'm super successful in this fiat currency game. I don't care what you have to tell me. I'm not open-minded to it at all, right? They just deny it because it's super it,
0: inconvenient.
1: Yeah. It, it's <laughs> maybe you're I mean, right. It's going to make things very inconvenient for them. I have, I love my aunt Carolyn. She comes to mind here. She's an amazing woman. But when I talk to her about Bitcoin, she's very reticent. She's like, no, you have we love the US dollar. We have to protect the US dollar. She's very stuck in her belief system on the US dollar. Yeah. And I just don't want to end up like that about that, is my point. I want to always be open-minded. I don't even with Bitcoin, you know. I don't want to be the 80-year-old Ooh. guy that's like still, oh, it's all Bitcoin, and there'd be some other earth shattering technology that's come around the corner that I'm blind to.
0: It's so funny you say this because I have this exact same fear. I'm looking at Charlie Munger. Okay. Mm, yeah. And I'm saying, how is it possible for me to never become what happened to him when he's 80 and he's in his 90s? They're yeah. like, when when I get later in my life, what can I do to, to guard and protect against that? Mm-hmm. Um, And I have no answer for that. I have no idea yeah. how a person can guard against that. Because again, think about all the conditioning that has happened on his brain for 90 years. Right. And you think that all of a sudden you're going to show him something that's that's going to undo some of that. Right. Uh, I mean, good luck.
1: Yeah. So that, that intellectual inertia just keeps growing as you age. And at some point you that's just right. can't resist it, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And he still reads a lot, right? I mean, still. Of course, he's. he's yeah. um, But, you know, the, so they talk about this idea of challenging your beliefs. And um, I mean, you would think that he would be reading books about it and really trying to challenge it, especially as something achieves a trillion dollar market cap. You'd think you'd be saying, all right, well, any other thing that achieved a trillion dollar market cap, I've read up on it and tried to understand it. And yeah. maybe they are, maybe they are. I don't I don't know if they are, but I know they've never talked about reading any type of Bitcoin book. Um and and I think when a person, you know, cognitive biases, uh the, there's a great book called Super Forecasters. Have you read that? I Robert? Have not. This is a really good book. And it talks about uh, these people that, um, who are experts at forecasting. Mm-hmm. Why are they so good at forecasting? And one of, the, one of the big things that was kind of my takeaway is, they're, A, they're constantly updating their opinion. B, they're totally open to either outcome. If it's a binary outcome, they're totally open to the idea that it could be either binary outcome. And then finally, they try to balance their, their content consumption, their data throughput and back into their brain equally for both potential outcomes, if we're talking mm-hmm. about a binary outcome, mm-hmm. um, so that they can allow themselves the ability to not have a cognitive bias as they're assessing what the potential outcome would be. And so- You know, I think uh, people that would be listening to this that are maybe skeptical of Bitcoin, they'd be looking at the two of us and saying, "Well, y'all are describing yourself right now, and in a major way that have a massive cognitive bias towards Bitcoin." And I think that I think it's a little bit of a fair assessment. If I was going to try to push back on it, I would tell you one of the main reasons I'm on Twitter, talking about it so much, Mm -hmm. is to find somebody who can just shellack me. Yes comes to a counter-argument, um, I mean, how many times have you heard the same arguments and very, I mean, you could talk energy, you could talk, yeah. all, you've heard it relentlessly. Yeah, And I I think if I was going to describe the people with laser eyes, not all of them, <laughs> but yeah. the the really, the, the ones that I would really respect in the space, they, uh, if somebody can bring a really strong argument to something, they want to hear it. They really do want to hear it. And they want to try to pick it apart.
1: Absolutely. Actually, that is the foundation of my overall bullishness is I've, yeah, I have I have tried to look at those counter arguments and the FUD. And it. what I see happening is the FUD... Keeps drying up. The arguments, to your point, they get repeated actually from cycle to cycle. The identical Absolutely. counter arguments. Like, not, there's no addition. Heather. To it. Yeah. Yeah. The same articles get reprinted. It's incredible. But then it's on the, the Bitcoin side, I see this network that just keeps growing and becoming more feature rich, and the community is growing, the narratives and the education. So it's like, I yeah, you just, Kind of put those things on a scale and see which way it's going. Um, yeah. But it's a valid criticism because if you just read my Twitter, I look like some kind of religious zealot for Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> so.